One of my most uh, memorable experiences uh, from the year that I lived in China was uh, during, I guess, what would be kind of similar to our reading week, I was invited by one of uh, our university students that I was teaching uh, to visit his hometown. Uh, little, little, uh, he said it was a little village. I was expecting a little village. Apparently in China, a little village is like three to five million people. You know, that's the little village. Uh, but he, he invited me to this little village outside of Shanghai. And um, Frank, this is what we called him, Frank, he was the first one from his village to study in Beijing. Uh, and so you have to understand that was quite an honor, number one, for him to go to Beijing, the capital of China, to study and, uh, at, our, at our prestigious university. And um, he, uh, so he was the first one. So he was like a big deal in his village. And then, and then for me, as his foreign teacher, to come and visit his village, uh, we heard that I was the first American to visit that, that village. And um, it, was just, it was just a pleasure to spend the week with him there. Um, it was a bit off the beaten path. Uh, so like, I'll show you a picture. This is, this is Frank's house. This is where we stayed. Um, Frank's house, it was actually, you know, it's actually a nice place. It was about a 20 by 20 completely concrete uh, structure. Uh, the living room was on the ground floor, and the living room had a big garage door. And so you would open up the garage door, basically during the day, because it was really nice weather. Uh, but at night, you would pull in your like scooter and your motorbike, and you just park them right in your living room, and then you'd close the garage door. So the living room doubled as the garage. Um, there was no running water in the house. The beds were basically, you know, built two by fours with some some sheets and blankets on them. Uh, no running water in the house. You had to go out to the back patio, and there there was a um, there's the faucet along the back, kind of out into the yard, and that's where you do all your washing, so you never shower, uh, just washing with the washcloth, things like that. So it took me a little bit, uh, a while of, you know, adjustment to living there. The, 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 the bathroom, obviously there's no sewage treatment, so it was just a, a, a kind of in the back of the house, there was a little kind of shanty they had built, and that's where the hole was, and I didn't bring that picture. Uh, but it was nice. The, the neighbors, they loved each other. They were, they were running around, all these little kids running around. It just seemed like a really joyful place. It was a cool place. But the crazy part, the thing that was amazing to me was I would, um, I, he was giving me kind of, you know, we'd walk around his village, and you'd see the houses like this, but right next to them, you'd see a house like this. And one day we were invited to, um, I was invited actually to this house. It was, I thought, he said it was his uncle's house. So I thought it was like an uncle, but I realized like everybody in the village is his uncle, right? But anyway, so, but we were invited to this house. And I'll tell you, this house was probably one of, even in Canada, it was one of the nicest, most modern, you know, most opulent places I'd ever seen. I mean, you walk in, so in Frank's house, he had basically no decorations at all. He had a, a picture of Mao, basically, it was the only, you know, art he had in his house. But this house, you walk in, and there are some statuettes, you know, in the, in the grand foyer, and, you know, a chandelier. Um, it was such a shock, a culture shock, after just spending, you know, this time at Frank's house, and then suddenly just going, you know, a block away, and, and here's this. I, mean, I took a shower there, right? They had running water, running shower. I can't imagine, I'm looking back on this, I know they had a toilet. It must have been like, what it, my mom called it 
a composting toilet. Must have been something like that. There's no way that this guy like built a sewage system. I don't even think that's possible. I don't know, but I do know they had a toilet, so I don't, I don't know what happened there. But it was amazing to me. And he sat down, and we had this amazing feast, right? I mean, probably in every house when I ate at the village, I was like the honored guest. So like, they, they were all pulling out all the stops for me at every meal. But this feast at this house was, you know, ridiculous. And I remember sitting down, and, and Frank, my student, was translating for me. And I remember this uh, gentleman, his uncle, he had, in fact, I'm, I'm actually... I, I copied out some of my email that I wrote to like my mom and some people during this time because I remember this conversation we had. He was very interested in life in America, where I'm from, and he was very uh, interested in the quality of life. And I remember he asked me this question through my student who was translating. He said, please tell me about the quality of life in America. How is the quality of life? And I actually have my answer that I wrote, that I I spoke to him. I wanted to write it down and kind of reflect on that conversation. And so I said to him, if you're talking about bottom line economic prosperity, if that's what you mean by quality of life, the, the stuff that we have and the standard of living, the economic prosperity, well then, life in the United States It cannot be denied that life in the U.S. is second to none in the world. We have everything. But if you speak of a quality of life which deals with contentment and happiness, I believe that you can find a higher standard anywhere in the world. And that's why I believe that I can leave all my possessions and still have a higher quality of life than the richest man. And the guy looked at me like I was crazy. And he said to me something kind of funny. He, he thought that I had, I had given him that answer. He didn't know I was a Christian. And he thought I had given him that answer because that's the way Americans think. Right? He thought that must be the strange way that Americans think. Not knowing that I was a Christian and that's why I think that way. Because he said to me, he said, you don't understand. He said, that might be true in America But in China, if your neighbor has something, you must then have it. And I said, are you kidding me, America? We invented that. Right? uh, And I don't don't believe we invented that. It's something in the heart heart of mankind. We believe that somehow we believe that it is in our material possessions that we find quality of life. Well, last week, Adam spoke uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and he, and he spoke to some of these themes. He spoke to four themes last week. Adam spoke to the themes of greed, prosperity, contentment, and stewardship. And his, his points were actually very simple, and these are the points straight from Solomon's observations of life. And the points were very simple. I loved how Adam put it. Greed is bad. Prosperity itself is not bad, but is in fact a gift of God. And so we should find contentment and practice stewardship. And Adam helpfully gave us definitions of all those things. But today we're going we're to drill out, as we go into chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, we see that Solomon drills down into one of those words that Adam brought out last week. Specifically the word of contentment. Adam uh, 
defined it for us last week as contentment is finding joy in the lot that God has given us. We saw that idea, this lot, come up last week as we kind of looked at Solomon through this book. And and this book, Ecclesiastes is one of the most famous books of the Bible because it speaks of Solomon's own kind of pursuit of the things in life that that will matter, the things in life that will be gained, the things that you can get or extract out of life. It's a famous very famous book, primarily because of chapter 2, that pursuit in which Solomon says, I pursued pleasure, I pursued wisdom, I pursued power, I pursued honor, I pursued satisfaction in work, I pursued all of these things, but in these things alone, it was like trying to harness the breath, it was trying to shepherd the wind, I wasn't able to extract anything from life. And so as he has been concluding through the book, as he's been making this argument through the book, here are four times in the book he he brings us back to some of the conclusions he's trying to drive home. So for example, at the end of chapter two, at the end of those pursuits, he concludes there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But that's not something that comes from within us. He says pretty directly, this also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So this, this ability, this ability to, to find joy in life is actually a gift from God. And that actually he develops in the conclusion uh, that was the, at the end of uh, Adam's chapter that he looked at last week where he says in chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil. So very similar to what he said already. To find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. This is what God has assigned to mankind. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, and here... There's a key phrase that we're going to be kind of looking at, unpacking in chapter 6. The power to enjoy them. God gives us not only the wealth and the possessions, but the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. And so that's what we're going to be drilling down to. As as Solomon kind of turns to, as he gets into chapter 6, he's going to drill down into this idea of receiving from God, accepting our lot, finding enjoyment in our toil, and enjoying the things that God has provided to us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And today we're going to look at three of Solomon's observations. We're going to look at a little bit of his conclusions, how he's going to press those observations home to us. And then um, I'll also connect it to an observation from the New Testament. But Heavenly Father, I pray that as you open up this word to us, that you will be speaking to our hearts, that it will not be my words, but my words will be hidden in yours. And uh, Holy Spirit, I really pray as we get down to the end of this message, if there are things that we've been struggling and fighting with you about, fighting with you about our lot, I pray, God, that you'll help us to trust you with those things. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're in chapter 6. If you have a pew Bible, you can find Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You can follow along there. Um, you can use your phone if you've got a phone app, and I'll put some of the verses up on the screen as well. But we're in Ephesians cha- uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. The first two points that are observations that Solomon have are actually related to, to each other. And I know sometimes when I do this, it, I'm like, man, this seems so simple. 
So please forgive me if my summary of Solomon's points seems so simple. Sometimes it's the simplest things that are, are very profound and that we struggle with most with actually applying in our lives. But the first two points that are, that are pretty related are, first, joy comes from God, not stuff. And the second one is like it, you can have it all and still have nothing. And I'll, I'll unpack those points a little bit. Joy, joy comes from God and not from stuff. In Ecclesiastes 6.1, Solomon writes, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavily on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. And what I want you to see here is that Solomon separates. He makes a separation between the things God gives and the power to enjoy them. So the idea is here is that God has given this man wealth, he's given him possessions, and he's given them honor, but God has not given to that same individual the power to enjoy them. He is dissatisfied in all of these gifts that God has given. Now, he says he's not able to enjoy them. He says someone else is able to enjoy them. And I'm not actually sure what that means. I think it could mean two different things. It could mean, um, it could mean that he's not able to join them, enjoy the things that God has given him, the wealth, the possessions, and honor. And so someday he's going to die, and he's going to leave them for people who haven't worked for them. He says that earlier in the book. In chapter 2, he says basically that. There's a man who, who attains so much for himself, but he's, his whole life is, de- is dedicated to this toil and this, this striving after these things, and he himself is not able to enjoy them, but then his descendant, his son, comes after him, and he, he's a- actually able to enjoy the things that the first person has worked for. It could mean that. It could also mean, um, it could also mean something else. Uh, I, I was thinking of one of our young adults got an internship at Apple Computer a couple of years ago, and these when he, he was like emailing me and called me on the phone as he started work, his work at Apple. And um, I asked him how the internship was going. And he said it, it was going okay, but he said, I can't believe people do this as a career. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, as an intern there, he said, I actually, don't, I actually am not trying to kill myself here. But he was working 80, 90 hours a week. And he said, this is, this is routine. He said, people there actually like buy trailers and sleep in the parking lot of their workplace. They don't go home. And they're making tons of money, right? And they have the honor and prestige. You say, man, I work at Apple Computer. Ooh. So they have the wealth. They have the money and prestige. But they're, and, and what they're doing is producing something that gives other people joy. Like, I've got my smartphone. I'm thankful for those engineers that have slaved their lives away. But that's exactly what he's talking about. He's slaving his life away. He said, I can't imagine how anybody could have a family. I can't imagine how anybody could have a life slaving away. He's not given the power to enjoy them, but others enjoy the work of his hand. And so I don't know exactly which way Solomon is referring to this, but Solomon's main point in in, in just introducing in, in, in this first observation is this. We have to understand that there's a distinction between the good things that God gives us, like the wealth and the, the possessions and, and the honor. There's a distinction between those things and the power to enjoy. 
And that's his first point. And the second point is very similar to it. You can still have it all and still have nothing. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his lives are many, but his soul is not satisfied and life's good things and he has no burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it hasn't seen the sun or known anything, but it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place. And this principle is coming out of the first. What he's basically saying is, if joy and possessions are two separate things. The, the, the gifts of all that God gives and the gift to enjoy the things that God gives are two completely separate things. And so if you do not have that second thing, it does not matter how much you accumulate of the possessions and the honor and the wealth. If you're not able to enjoy them, it just, and he takes two things and he, he, he uses hyperbole or exaggeration. Like in the ancient world, a blessing, a blessed life was considered one where you'd have multiple children or that you'd live multiple years in health. And so he says, listen, if you're not able to find joy in one kid, it wouldn't matter if you had a hundred. If you're not able to receive the power to enjoy your life in one day, it would not matter if you lived 200,000 years. You're just adding a bunch of zeros together, is what he is saying. And he's actually saying if that is the state of your life, where you are not able to take the joy in the one thing that God has given you, and it would not matter then if it was multiplied a hundred or a thousandfold, then listen, you are striving your life and you are wasting your life. You, you have a restless spirit. You are dissatisfied and unable to find joy in anything that God has given you. And that is why he says it would be better for a, for a person to just be stillborn because at least they rest and don't waste their lives in this toil and this striving. And so this is what Solomon is observing and this is what he's insisting on. The joy is not in the stuff. The joy to enjoy, the power to enjoy is a separate gift from God. And if you do not have this, it does not matter how much stuff you have. That's his point. Now, I do think we should pause here to consider because this, um, this relationship between stuff and joy has actually become something that our culture right now is thinking about a lot. Have you heard of, maybe, maybe this is, I can skip over this illustration, but how many of you have heard of Marie Kondo? So, so a couple of you, all right? So this, this woman, uh, uh, she's a Japanese woman. Uh, it's, she is a declutterer. She, she released, she's written a couple books, but lately she released a TV series on Netflix, uh, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And, um, and it's been helping people sift through all of that stuff that they've accumulated over the years. It's helping people to declutter. And her method is, her method is to sift through each of, you know, a set of the items of your life. Like, so, so you take out all your clothes out of your closet and out of your drawers, and you dump them all out on your bed. Okay, that's her method. And you, you have all your clothes dumped out on your bed. And I watched like one episode of the show. And, like, uh, and people are like, just that idea of dumping out all your clothes on your bed, people are like, I didn't know I had all that stuff. And it actually depresses them. Like, I had all that? 
I never th- saw it like that way before. And then what you do is you take each item of clothes and you pick it up really gently. And you feel it. Look at it. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to connect with emotionally the shirt. And, and you, does it, and the question you're to ask is, does it spark joy? That's the question. And if it sparks joy, hallelujah. It, it made the cut. And you, you, you then to fold it up, you actually to thank it for it sparking joy in you, fold it up, and you put it back in the drawer nicely, and you respect it, and you take care of it, you be gentle to it. And then you take another piece of clothes, you look at it, and you know this old ratty t-shirt from college, and this is no longer sparking joy in you. And again, you, sorry man, it's not there. It's not you, it's me. And, uh, and you, you, you again, you nicely fold it up, and you now you put it in your other pile, which is designated, I don't know, for whatever you're going to do with those clothes. And what she's, there's actually, actually this show has become a phenomenon. I'm in a couple different um, Facebook groups where people are talking about this. Actually, this has led to like record donations to thrift shops this winter. And it's actually, there are some good things in her work. She seems to be helping to awaken people to the uselessness of our hoarding. Opening up our eyes to all this stuff that we have. And and in a sense, what she's doing is she's actually opening up a lot of people's eyes to the second principle that Solomon is talking about, that the joy does not come in accumulation. Right? She's actually helping people to see we've accumulated all this stuff and it's, it's breath. Right? To use the word that Solomon's been using. It's all just vapor and breath. This accumulation has not brought us joy. And so she's actually doing well to help people to see that. But what I'd say about her method is that in, in, in affirming the second principle, she's actually leading us away from affirming the first. And she's actually coming, she's Japanese, so she's coming from a, a worldview, uh, a religious worldview uh, connected to the religion of Shintoism. And Shintoism, you, every, every item has this uh, the, kind of, um, the, this, these kami. Kami are this kind of spiritual worldview where this, this kami are these spirits that indwell you know, everything, nature and people and stuff. And so what, when, when she's actually like giving gratitude to you know, a book or a shirt, when she's actually asking that thing to spark joy and what sparks joy, it's actually coming from this worldview in which it's not just the shirt, it's this kind of spiritual essence of this shirt. But what she's doing is she's looking at the shirt itself or the book itself to inspire or to connect some sort of feeling of joy within it. And, and I would say what she's doing there is she's actually, she's actually uh, even more firmly establishing that connection between joy and stuff. In fact, it's the stuff that is to spark the joy. And what Solomon is saying here, Solomon saying something completely opposite. What Solomon is saying is the joy is not in the stuff at all. In fact, I found, I tried it, I watched that episode of Mary Kondo and I thought, oh, I'll go through my shirts. And uh, what I found was it was difficult because I'm trained as a Christian. And here's the deal. I, I, I had a hard time because I'm looking at all my stuff going, God, thank you for this. And God, thank you for this. 
And God, thank you for this. And yes, you know what? I was still able to sift through my stuff and get rid of stuff. Because God teaches us to have what Adam spoke to last week. Stewardship of our stuff. Stewardship of our person. But I couldn't do Kondo's method because I have been trained by God as a Christian to be thankful and to be content in all things. To glorify God with all things. And not, not to look through possessions or titles or people and evaluating how much joy do they spark in me. I have been trained by God to receive his blessing, to seek his joy. And I will not, I will not let anyone try to speak to me the lie that the joy is found in the possession itself. Solomon is very careful to say, you can have everything, wealth, possessions, honor, yet you have not been able to receive the joy. Which leads to his third observation. We feed our bodies while our souls starve. His next observation. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite isn't satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's a curious translation. I want to help unpack this for you a little bit because the translation is a little bit difficult here. The word appetite here, I do not know why our English Bibles, some of our English Bibles, translated as appetite. It's the Hebrew word nefesh. The Hebrew word nefesh through the Old Testament is more consistently translated as that animating spirit within us, our soul. And I think to get in context even, with Ecclesiastes chapter 6 in context, what I think what he's teaching us here, and what he's warning us here, is this, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet our souls remain unsatisfied. That you toil and you slave. If you think your joy is connected to your possessions... You will be laboring and toiling for the things that benefit you materially. But Solomon, through this entire book, has said you will not find gain there. You will not find joy in the things. There is no spark of joy in the things. You must receive joy from the hand of God. We labor and toil after things while our souls are at unrest. If life is merely about physical sustenance, if it's only about eating to work another day and then eating again to work another day, and then it doesn't matter the wise or fool, the poor or rich, none of these distinctions matter, as he speaks about in verse 8. Because we toil our lives away striving for things that do not engage the soul. Rachel Gilson, working for the Gospel Coalition, she uh, speaks of this lack of soul engagement, and actually she's She's actually reflecting on the Marie Kondo phenomena. She says, isn't this exactly what Kondo is tapping into? We Americans, and I would say North Americans, do not precisely know how to abound. Not in the sense that we aren't stacked with plenty. Clearly we are. No, in the sense that right in the middle of abundance, we've lost our way. 
We don't know how to thrive in abundance. It drowns us instead of lifting our boats. There has to be a secret to mastering this instead of letting it master us. Right? How can we be the richest and yet unhappiest people of all time? And what is Solomon's answer? Solomon's answer brings us back to contentment. Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the soul. And again, that's a hard, it's a hard verse to translate. Uh, most commentators see it as an idiom. And, and basically what this idiom, the idea here is not to let your soul wandering around looking in envy over what you do not have, not letting your soul be restless searching the earth. What can I grasp and gain out of this breath? But instead, to find, to receive joy from God in the things that are right in front of your eyes. Rather than letting your soul wander for the things that will not satisfy, finding and receiving enjoyment from God for the things that are right in front of you. That's contentment. Contentment is the training of the soul to be satisfied with God's gift and the lot he has a sign. Now, you can disagree with Solomon. Some of you might. Some of you might think, well, Solomon, you know, I'm going to go with Marie Kondo. I don't believe you, Solomon. And this is why Solomon has written this book. Solomon has written this book to say, listen, I went after it all. I had more wealth than any of my contemporaries. I had more power than any of my contemporaries. I had more wisdom than any of my contemporaries. I had more girls than any of my contemporaries. I had it all. And listen to me. You can live your life toiling away just to feed your body and and your physical desires. And your soul will remain unsatisfied. Better, better, better it is. To receive contentment, the gift of God, finding joy in His things and in the things He has placed before your eyes, then rushing headlong with your restless soul into the things that will not satisfy. And I do not know what that is for you. In fact, fact, this is then how He brings us to this conclusion. This conclusion is this. God knows what is best for you, so stop fighting with Him about it. That's his conclusion. He says, he concludes this section, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He is speaking about God here. He's saying God already knows what he has planned for you. God already knows you and it does not do to fight with him. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon, and we've gotten this all through this book, Solomon strongly, strongly believes in God's sovereign power and purpose and plan for our lives. He doesn't use the phrase our lot here like he did in Adam's message last week at the end of chapter 5. He doesn't use the phrase our lot, but it's clear he's defining for us what our lot is here. The things that are in our lives, the things that God knows about us and that he has ordained in our lives, that is our lot. And it does not good to fight with him about it. 
In other words, find contentment in what is set in front of you, for who are you to fight with God? Yet we argue with so many words, and we fight with God and gain no advantage for all our words and all our strivings. He asks, what do we gain? What is that advantage? The more words, the more vanity. And verse 12 is to the point. Who knows what is good for man while he lives? Can you tell the future? How many times have you prayed to God to change your situation? And you got angry when that prayer seemingly went unanswered. And then later you were thankful that he kept you from that thing that you were praying for. It's like the person who prays that she might receive the promotion to manager. And she's really, really angry with God when that, 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 that promotion goes to one of her coworkers. Yet a month later, they're doing layoffs and they're firing all the managers. I don't know if you have had a prayer like that, where you've prayed for something over and over. You've prayed, God, change my circumstance. God, change this. God, grant me this. God, help me here. And, and God has been silent, and you have been angry. And in many words, you've been contending with and fighting with God who is stronger than yourself. The reality Solomon points to here is who can tell what comes after? We do not know the future, and we do not even know what is best for us. That's what Solomon is speaking here. He is the one who knows what man is. He is the one who knows what has been named. He is the one who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life. And so I don't know what it is, and and here's Here's where I pray the Holy Spirit will be speaking each to individually to each one of you. I do not know what that thing is in your life that you have been struggling with and contending with God over. And I do not know the reason as to why He's allowing it to remain in your life and is not changing your circumstance. But I do know this He is a God who knows you, He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your situation, he knows your circumstance, and he knows your future. The Apostle Paul, and and we do not know what this thorn in the flesh is that the Apostle Paul wrestled with God over. He says, God had given me this thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for God to remove this thing. And what God had told him was, Paul, no. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power will be made perfect in your weakness. See, I don't know how the Apostle Paul, I don't know how he heard that from the Lord, but the Lord actually revealed a bit to him of why he was not answering his prayer in the affirmative. I'm not even guaranteeing that the Lord will do that to you. What I'm saying is Solomon is reminding us here that God is in heaven and we are on earth and we are to let our words be few. The final thought that I want to bring in here from the New Testament is that life is not about our possessions, but in whose possession we are. This phrase that is brought up a number of times in the New Testament is that we are His. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, Paul's speaking about sexual morality, and he said, you are, you are not your own. Don't you understand? You're not your own. 
Your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. You have been bought. You've been bought with a price. It's not about the possessions that God gives you. It's about that, that if you, number one, by virtue of creation, you are his. By virtue of creation, the very fact that you are able to take breath into your lungs, that he has given you graciously, you are his. We are his people. We are his possession. By virtue of creation, but the New Testament particularly declares by virtue of redemption, we are his. Our life is not our own. We have been bought with a price. He says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I pray that I, I pray that we would not buy, and for myself included, I pray that we would not buy into the lie that joy in life will come from possessions. That there's any connection between the things that we accumulate and the enjoyment that we receive from the Lord. I pray that we'd understand that, that our life is not to be devoted to the accumulation of things. And it's not simply to be devoted to how we can meet those satisfactions of our body. But that our souls have been created to find our satisfaction in Him. And we have all, like sheep, turned away from Him, each one of us, to our own way. We have, we have, we have not considered it uh, proper in our own lives to recognize God's ownership and that, that we are his possession and we have turned away from him in sin to follow our own pursuits. And in turning away from him, we have basically said to the God of the universe, get out of our lives. And he has given us over to our sin. We are agents of God's wrath. That God has revealed his love for us in this. And even though we had turned away from him, even though we had brought on our own destruction, we, we, we had invited His judgment upon us. God in His love sent His Son Jesus into this world to redeem us. That means to buy us back, to be a people for His own possession. That's a different way to live. If you would come, if you would come before the Lord, if you'd come and, and acknowledge your sin before a holy God, if you'd if you'd see the life of Jesus, how he lived, I believe Jesus was the most joyous man who ever lived. He he lived his life under the gaze of the Father. He said, I will only do what the Father has commanded me to do. Did that mean God kept him from every trial? No, not at all. Did it mean he was a rich man? No, not at all. But he said before he went, he ascended to heaven, my joy I leave with you. And so I plead with you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would turn to him today and trust in him. Leave your life behind of following your wants, desires, and ambitions and find your ambition and your satisfaction in him. And if you're a Christian today, I'll tell you, this world is going to lie to us. 
It's going to lie to us, trying to convince us that our joy is to be found in our possessions. Don't believe a lie. Don't let your soul restlessly wander. Don't come to the end of your life like Solomon, having to write a book to the younger generation. That's not how to live. Seek him and find joy.